Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm very excited to be speaking with the unorthodox John Hempton, fund manager and founder for Bronte Capital. In this episode, we speak to John about what they got wrong during COVID-19 and what they've learned from that and how human behavior is exceptionally important in his analysis of it. We talk to him about spotting trends in the new world and how this has changed from the mining sector and some of the traditional shorts that John used to look for and what the new world looks like in hunting some of those frauds or short position. We also talk to John about what he is seeing in markets at the moment and where he's finding opportunities to invest money on behalf of investors. Please remember that this podcast isn't, nor is it designed to be, advice for anyone. We encourage you to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and to seek advice before making any investment decisions. Please keep your feedback and suggestions coming. They're really appreciated and there's been some great suggestions. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Enjoy the episode. John Hempton, welcome back to Inside the Rope. Thank you. John, it's been a little while since we last spoke to you, and I can actually recall last time I spoke to you was on a weekend, and I um, first call I made was to my parents and, and said to them, look, this uh, pandemic that we've been reading about in Italy and Iran and China um, is a little bit more serious than most people have taken, and you probably need to start thinking about taking precautions. Um, so it's nice to be speaking to you again, albeit we are still in the pandemic, but how have things progressed in your thinking since that day? In a very big picture, I was way more bearish than average in February. Um, and what we were doing was applying just a sort of standard mathematical model of that, about how a pandemic would play out. And, you know, th these models work very well if you're thinking about phages in bacteria or myxomatosis in rabbits. And as nobody else was thinking about the pandemic, the model was actually working extremely well. And about a month later, all hell broke, broke loose, loose in the world. Our very, very good and very cheap hedges on a pandemic made us a crap load of money. And we didn't adjust our thinking. But the world did. And this is actually just like the model, the mathematical model of the pandemic was absolutely right till everybody knew about the pandemic. Um, and we know that mathematical model works with bacteria, you know, phages in bacteria or myxomatosis in rabbits. And we also know it doesn't work in humans. And the reason it doesn't work in humans is humans are automatons, are not automatons. When there's a pandemic, we respond. And the easiest way we respond is we just don't go out to parties or sing in choirs or do things like that. And so the pandemic slowed down. And it puzzled us and we consistently got wrong about how much it slowed down. And if we had got it right at that point, we would have taken the boatload of money we made in March and invested it properly and we would be up 15 plus percent for this year instead of a few percent for this, we'd probably be 15% better. But we did get it wrong. Now here's what I think currently happens. Oh, the first thing you need to know is, if I model a 
phage in a bacteria or a rat or myxomatosis in rabbits, the curve itself doesn't depend on how deadly the disease is. Right? The disease will just go through the population. If it's 15% mortality, it will go through the population. If it's 2% mortality, it will still go through the population. The curve, the curve is independent of the deadliness of the disease. Now, if you look at it in humans, what happens is humans are sort of risk modelers a little bit anyway. Going out to work used to have very little risk, but it now has more risk associated with it. Um, going to a choir used to be a very low-risk activity. It's now quite a high-risk activity for most people. Um, but there's also a benefit for going out to work, which is you earn some money. And there's benefit for going out to a party, which is it's fun, or going to the theatre or the football. And what happens is people adjust up and down the amount of risk that they are prepared to take such that it matches the benefit that they're prepared, that they get. And that's individual for everybody. But the net effect of which is eventually the virus goes sideways, or to use the jargon, R0 goes to 1. And the logic is this. If you know the disease is rampant, people will immediately sort of withdraw. They'll take a little less risk. And as they withdraw, the disease fades away a little bit. If the disease isn't rampant and it doesn't feel like it's very risky to go to the shops without a mask on, people will go to the shops without a mask on and the disease will come back a little bit. And so it turns out that almost everywhere that hasn't dealt with the pandemic thoroughly has a situation where the, where the virus is sort of going in this interminable sideways thing. Incidentally, it doesn't actually matter what the mortality of the virus is, the R0 will still go to one. So if the virus had a 15% mortality, like a sort of SARS, well, SARS was about 10%, so let's call it 10% like SARS, it's going to go to 1. And if it had a 1% mortality, which is probably where this is, it'll go to 1. And there's only really two solutions. One is just accept it. In other words, go the Sweden route, and you just accept that large numbers of people will get sick and die. And the other route is to go the Victoria route, which is you, if people, are, when, the, when you get to very low numbers, it doesn't go away. And the reason it doesn't go away is that people go back to taking normal risks. So what you've got to do in order to, to defeat that vicious cycle is when it gets to very low numbers, people aren't scared of the virus. So you have to make them scared of something else. And the easiest thing to make them scared of is the police. Right? So the sort of version of it I have is that there are only really two optimal strategies. Optimal strategy is Sweden and let everybody manage it and just accept that it's going to be nasty. Or Victoria, but don't do a half measure. Now, put a gun to my head, given that I have at least one acquaintance that's died of this. You know, I'm, and I'm somebody who values human life much higher than I value the economy generally. I'm, I'm very much in the Victoria camp, but you could argue it either way. Now, the e economic effect, though, was I was projecting that the virus would get worse and worse and worse. And it didn't. It's not going to get better and better and better until you have a vaccine. Right? Um, 
In fact, it'll probably get worse as the weather gets cold in the Northern Hemisphere and it'll get better into the summer, but by, I hope by the next Northern Hemisphere summer there's a vaccine. But I was projecting that the virus would get worse and worse and worse and hence the economy would get worse and worse and worse, and I was wrong. And if I had my time again, I would have just said, okay, let's go back to being the automatic rough beta that we use to run the portfolio. So, you know, if we're moderately bearish, the beta will be about 0.2, 0.3, and if we're moderately bullish, it'll be 0.5, but we don't take the betas outside ranges without conscious decisions. And instead, and we actually wrote it in the letter at the end of March, that we were as short as we ever were, and that was possible in part because we had some optionality left. It was a mistake. Now, it's not been a bad year, right? But we got something spectacularly right in this year and we got something spectacularly wrong. Now, Australia is a different case because I'm pretty sure Australia is going to eliminate it going into the summer. We've got to the point where track and trace works. We've got very low numbers of cases and we're going to protect the border a little better this time after the debacle of Victoria. But let's think about America or the Northern Hemisphere. We know that the virus is nastier in winter. So all that will happen is that the risks of going out will go up. But people ha still have to go out in an American system. You know, um, poor people in particular, you know, there's no welfare. So if you don't go out, you start. So all that will happen is you'll get this adjustment up in the underlying death rate. And we're going through that adjustment now, and then it will go sideways at a higher number. The um, model of people adjusting risk to reward also explains lots of things. It explains, for instance, why Sweden was much better than we thought. Because in Sweden, if you don't go out, your penalty is you get to enjoy really nice Swedish welfare. Right? The risk, the cost of not going out is not very high. In America, though, if you don't go out and you're poor, you starve. So if you adopted the Swedish solution and put it in America, you could expect many times the death rate in America than you would expect in Sweden, simply because if people are going to equilibrate the risk and benefit of going out, they're going to go out more in America, simply because if they don't go out, they starve. Now, if, if you want the Swedish result in America, but with very few restrictions, you have to have Swedish welfare in America. That's not likely to happen, not even under a Biden administration, right? But that's the way that you get the Swedish result in America. The other thing is, you should note that the virus skews really poor in America. And the reason is that upper middle class people have nice houses that they can stay in and tend to have some savings and often have white collar jobs all of which can be done from home. And American low-income people ha have all sorts of problems that force them to go out. So if you look at America, it's now seven basis points or 0.7 of 1% of the population that have died. I haven't got good numbers on it, but I'm pretty sure it's at least double and probably triple that number for the African-American community. Um, I have a friend who had lunch with some African-American politicians he's friends with, a North American guy, and they were saying 
that everybody in their community is sort of one degree from, of separation from somebody who died. Right? And that's much, much more prevalent than anyone who wasn't in one of the early clusters like New York or Milan. Um, that said, there's no question in my mind it's going to get worse for some time now as the weather gets cold. But the response to it getting worse will be that people will just sort of contract the amount of economic activity. They won't go out as much. They won't work as much. They'll work from home as much. Now, it's all bad for the economy, right? Um, you know, the recession that we're having in North America will probably get worse. But it won't get infinitely worse, right? When, you know, my original projections of a million and a half to three million American dead are just wrong, right? And they're wrong because people separated in ways that... Now, my advice in March or February, which was that you should think about how you separate and how you make sure that you don't get it, was good advice. And if you are a well-to-do middle-class person with the, right, you know, that has the ability to stay separate, do so. Now, in Australia, my guess is we'll probably eliminate it, in which case Australia will be fine. The, the, recess, the recessionary pulse that exists in America and Europe, where people are just going to be distancing themselves, just won't be here. I was talking to a tourist operator the other day who has a place on the northern co north coast of New South Wales that's not targeted at all at foreign tourists. It's entirely domestic tourists. And he's just going to have, he's got his best ever summer bookings. Right? And the reason he's got his best ever summer bookings is if you're from Sydney, you know, Australia is actually a net importer of tourism services. We send more money overseas when we're tourists than come to Australia. Um, that's not true in New Zealand. But the result of which is that the tourism industry on average should have a pretty good summer here because the domestic people will stay home. Now, if your tourism business was in southern New South Wales serving Victorians, you've just had a very bad time. And if your tourism business is serving entirely international tourists, you know, then you're probably going to have a very bad time. But if your tourist business is in two and a half hours north of Sydney serving entirely New South Welsh people on holiday, you're going to have a rip-roaring good time. Now, this guy, he um, looks like he's going to have his best summer ever, but last summer with the fires was his worst summer ever, and hopefully they'll average out. But That's the way it works. So, John, given that, how do you have the portfolio set up at the moment? In a very big picture, we have a Rick Van Winkle portfolio. You come, come back in... Go to sleep, come back in a year, and it looks roughly the same. Our longs are still, by and large, high-quality stocks um, that we buy and we intend to hold for years. Our shorts are, by and large, the widest range of crap we've ever done. We have, in, partly in response to the mistake of not keeping our beta constant, we've had an enormous amount of effort to measure our beta so that we can roughly keep it constant and get some kind of rebalancing effect. Um, and, th and that hasn't changed. Now, there are some things that have changed. If you look through the incremental longs we're adding, 
the incremental longs all fall into a bucket that you might call value stocks. And every now and again I tweet out something like, help, I'm looking at value stocks. And I get 500 responses, mostly wanting to send me to a rehabilitation clinic. There has been an argument every year for the last decade that value stocks have underperformed growth stocks and are relatively cheap. And somebody actually sent me a, you know, headlines from each year about how you should buy value stocks now. And the how you should buy value stocks now has been an absolutely consistent way to lose money. So when I say help, I'm looking at value stocks. I'm looking at them at the end of the worst decade of value stock underperformance in living memory. Now, it's actually, they underperform very badly into the tech bubble as well. And if you were a value stock, naive value stock investor, you did fantastic in the years 2000 to 2006, and then you got smashed. Mm -hmm. um, but we've been puzzling over what makes value stocks look so bad this decade. And there's an obvious answer. And the obvious answer is that the world has had, at least in the business world, a much higher rate of change. The other period of value stock underperformance was in the lead up to the tech bubble. But it, actually, to be fair, by 2000, the internet hadn't changed the world. Right? The internet was a bunch of promise that was going to change the world. And by, say, 2002, that promise looked like it had been over-promised and under-delivered. But if you look at it now, the internet really has changed the world. So if you're a value stock investor for the last decade, you bought things like, to pick an Australian example, Myers, department stores and things like mm -hmm. that. And their volume has just gone down every single year. You know, the online prop shop shopping comparison is just horrible to them. Or you bought media companies and you discovered, much to their chagrin, that the audience went away. So, you know, once upon a time, the Sydney Morning Herald was 250 pages and it's now about 40. And what funded that 250 pages was 200 pages of classifieds, which were known as the rivers of gold, and they've gone away. Or, for that matter, free-to-air TV. My son, who's a not atypical 20-year-old, I've never seen him watch free-to-air TV. I've seen him watch Netflix, I've seen him watch YouTube, I've seen him watch various pay online options. I've seen him watch the ABC, right? But I can't remember the last time I saw him watch free-to-air TV. The amount of free-to-air TV I watched as a kid was probably more than 10 hours a week. That was very standard in those days. You'd come home from school and you'd kick back and you'd flick on the idiot box. Mm -hmm. If you weren't playing cricket in the backyard. But, you know, it was one combination of those. Um, I've never seen it. It just doesn't happen anymore. Right? The audience numbers show it. And you that's the internet doing it. The world changed pretty dramatically and a whole lot of value stocks get smashed. So what makes you so happy to own value stocks now? Well, our, when we're buying our good companies, right, there's why is it a superior business and why is it going to be notably bigger and better in 10 years' time? And 
we actually don't need it to be a lot bigger and better in 10 years time. If it's 20% bigger in 10 years time, that's fine as long as you're buying it at a real price. And that has meant that Bronte has completely avoided the value stock debacle. We just don't have any retailers. We don't have, right? Because none of them could answer the question, why is it bigger and better in 10 years time? Now, the problem is that everything that's bigger and better in 10 years time now either has absurd margins or a P of 35 or more commonly both. Mm -hmm. And lurking out there are a bunch of things that have P's of 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, which are year 2000 valuation, value stock values. And the only question we really want to ask is, why is it going to be an important business in 10 years time? We don't need it to be bigger and better in 10 years time if it's seven or eight PE. We just need to make sure that we're not owning the Sydney Morning Herald as it implodes. Mm -hmm. Or um, some you know, free-to-air TV station. You know, the Nine Network once looked like a completely impregnable asset in Australia and now nobody cares. <laughs> right? We just need to make sure it doesn't look like that. So there are a couple of bundles that we've looked at. The most uncontroversial bundle is the custodian banks. Uh, these are State Street, Bank of New York, which we own a little bit of both of. Um, and the one I'm looking at at the moment, which is a lot more expensive than those two, which is Northern Trust, and we don't have a position. But um, these run the sort of back offices of large mutual funds. The main thing that they do is custody. Northern Trust also runs the back office of about 200 families with net worth of above $100 million. Right? It doesn't do the advisory necessarily, it just does the custody and making sure that all the wills are in state and all that mm -hmm. sort of legal dross that becomes very complicated when you have a multi-member family with $130 million. Um, and they're very good at it, incidentally, particularly in America. I don't know what their offer is like in Australia, and one day I have to ask you, sir. <laughs> but the, um, the, to pick State Street and Bank of New York, they have roughly $36 trillion, and that's trillion dollars, of other people's money. And I want to put that in perspective. The entire Australian mortgage market's a couple of trillion Australian dollars. So think about, you know, it's an order 15, of magnitude 15, larger. 15 to 20, 20 Australian mortgage markets of other people's money in custody. And custody is a really boring business. All I'm doing is making sure the assets are there and not stolen and the asset managers are acting in accordance to their mandates. Mm -hmm. And right, I put all of that into formulas and I hopefully run it with a computer. Um, the real revenue model was in fact a bait and switch one. They charge often as little as half a basis point for custody, but typically about one and a bit basis points, depending on you know how complicated the custody is. And then they charge a bunch of ancillary services on it. So thinking of one of my old jobs at Platinum Asset Management, we used to custody everything at State Street. And sometimes we were short a little bit of, say, Swiss francs, because we'd bought a Swiss franc stock and forgot to do the currency trade. Mm -hmm. And so 
you know, if you want to do a same day currency trade, it's best to do it at the custodian because they already have the cash and there's no settlement issue. And guess what? Their margins and are higher. And guess what? Their margin was a little higher on the same day trade. And they got pinged for ripping off American pension funds on this. And suddenly the margins came in. So they missed earnings over several years. The second thing is the electronic links to other players got better. So again, they were pressured downward on the margin there. But the real bait and switch was just sort of frictional cash. Even if you're running a mutual fund that's got only half a percent cash balance, inevitably at some stage you're going to have some cash coming in, some cash going out. You're going to have little balances and you need to put it out on deposit somewhere. And you can put it out on deposit with them or you can put it out on deposit. They'll farm it out with their software. And both ways they used to wind up getting a few bips. And you might not think this is very much, but when you're managing 36 trillion, or no, not managing, holding 36 trillion of other people's money, it turns out there's probably a trillion of cash floating around. Now, a trillion of cash is a frightening number. But if you earn a couple of basis points on that trillion of cash, it adds up to a lot of dough. And that, in fact, turned out to be the main source of revenue. Right? They're a cash handling business. Now, the problem, of course, is interest rates have gone to zero and have glued at zero. And cash is no longer an attractive, cash handling business is no longer a good business because you can't earn any spread on, those ca on that cash. And so their revenue is being compressed there as well. So everywhere you look, this thing has falling earnings, you know, revenue pressure. And I remember first looking at the stocks in the year 2000 and they were valued as tech stocks because they had lots of technology behind it. And so they were 40 times earnings and they're now seven, times, seven to eight times earnings. Weirdly, the earnings are not falling as fast as you'd think. For instance, they still do cash handling, but they pay you negative interest rates in, in Europe. Mm -hmm. There's no particular reason why cash handling shouldn't still get a fee. And your question is, is it going to be a okay business in 10 years? And the answer is, well, if you hold 30, $36 trillion of other people's money, you would think that there's some way that some of it drops into your pocket. Right. And are you concerned at all about blockchain or new technologies that may Block disrupt that service? Blockchain worries me not at all. It turns right. Um, blockchain is a game where Rather than have one person have a central register, mm -hmm. 500 people have a register. Mm -hmm. Well, if 500 people have a register, then you need 500 sets of computers hooked to the internet duplicating the same work. That's nuts. The only reason that you would do that is if you didn't trust the central register. But in this case, you know, a share register, we've, we've trusted them for a very long time property register we've trusted for a very long time. There are good reasons why you might not trust a central register, but not very many good reasons. The number of real blockchain cases that have turned up is very low. The biggest thing I'm worried about, and I hope the management of these podcasts don't listen to me, mm -hmm. is that the management of these companies just really, really, really sucks. And there's a good reason why it sucks, which is Almost by definition, custody is a boring business. My job is to hold your assets 
and make sure that a fund manager who has an interesting business complies, or the payments are not stolen. Every, right, a good day in custody, nothing goes wrong. A good year in custody, nothing goes wrong. There's no upside, there's nothing that can ever go right, and there's never a decision you make. You're just the safe hands that separates the assets from other people so they're not stolen. It's like insurance underwriting, there's no upside to it. Well, there's no upside, but it's worse than that. Insurance underwriting, you've got to make some decisions. Mm -hmm. I've got to decide whether this is a good risk. There's no acceptable risk in custody. There's no amount of theft that's allowed. All you're doing is safekeeping, right? it's about as boring as being the security guard on a gold vault deposit where you don't know the password, right? And in fact, that's what it's meant to be. It's meant to be really, really dull. And if you talk to former staff, and we've gone out of our way to talk to former staff because we try to do proper research on the companies we invest in, they all hate the company. And the reason they all hate the company is that every former staff we've talked, staff member we've talked to is dynamic enough to get out. Right? They've worked out that this is like the world's most boring job. And so when you get to the upper middle management, what you have is a bunch of people who are just so unbelievably breathtakingly dull that it's frightening. Right? As I say about custody banks, it's where excitement goes to die. <laughs> now, that's part, the main reason we think that the stocks might only be worth seven or eight times earnings, because they have lots of opportunities. But, I'm, right, but they're all opportunities to take out costs and do boring little ancillary services, but mostly to take out costs. And they require people who are probably fairly savvy with computers but, you know, if you're a good computer person, why the hell would you want to go and work with Bank of New York, right? You would avoid the place like a plague, right? So even if I happen to like the CEOs, and I don't love them, the next tier of management is just so dishly dull, right? Cut, you know, I, it's kind of funny because, you know, I'm reading Northern Trust's 10K at the moment. And I literally have to turn off everything else in the world and basically force myself to read it because it, the document itself is that dull, right? And Northern Trust is interesting compared to State Street. Wow. Right? wow. It's really bad in that sense. So that's, that's the, the other place we've been looking, and it's, again, sort of a little unethical. And it's, again, I mean, there's a big ESG craze at the moment. Mm -hmm. And there's a big growth craze at the moment. And so let's think of something that's not ESG and not growth. And I'm looking at the the big old dirty tobacco companies. And they're very cheap. So if there was a little while ago, I saw just a newspaper article, which seemed about right, which um, listed every stock in the world with more than $2 of cash flow trading at less than 10 times the cash flow. There were a grand total of 13 of them, and five of them were Japanese trading houses, or five Japanese trading houses, and Warren Buffett had bought a 9.99% position, in other words, a statutory limited position in all five trading houses, and essentially he's just buying cheap cash flows. I don't understand the trading houses. I just look at them and go, goo goo ga these are just too incomprehensible. 
that maybe that's because I haven't spent the four weeks required to really get my head around them. The other ones on the list were heavily skewed towards tobacco and the cheapest stock on the, in the world on that list, and I'm limiting it to cash flows above $2 billion, was British American tobacco. And that's sort of unsurprising because it's tobacco and it's also the UK, and the UK is the cheapest, I think the cheapest market where I'm not completely comprehensively culturally flummoxed. Mm -hmm. Japan is objectively a lot cheaper than the UK, but I don't understand it. I think I understand the ponds, but you know, not sure about that. Um, but so, so British American tobacco, and we have a 60-bit position in it. But here's the big picture. For years and years and years, tobacco, well, first, Let's take Australia. A cigarette is almost a dollar, but let's call it a dollar per cigarette. It's a bit of a lie, but it's an exaggeration, of which 90 cents is tax and 10 cents is the cigarette. Mm -hmm. Now, cigarettes are strangely brand loyal. I'm not a smoker. I don't understand it. But it turns out that you can addict a rat to cocaine by brand or by mechanism, but you can't. But alcohol... They don't, they don't care. So, you know, a cigarette smoker will say I'm a Benson and Hedges smoker or I'm a Winfield smoker or a Marlboro smoker, whereas an alcoholic, which is a downer, give them beer, they're happy, give them wine, they're happy, give them spirits, they're happy. They just like it if it's wet and alcoholic, mm -hmm. right? But um, the cigarettes are brand addictive. And so from the customer's perspective, imagine it's either a dollar or a dollar five. It's not much difference and they're brand-hooked. Mm -hmm. But from the cigarette company's perspective, that's an enormous difference. It's the difference between 10 cents and 15 cents because 90 cents is tax and that tax is on everybody. It's just on the tobacco. The net effect of which is that cigarette margins have gone up and up and up and the cigarette margins are supported by the tax regime. There are some countries where the cigarette margins are not supported by the tax regime. The most interesting example is Indonesia, which has an ad valorem tax. So that the, in Australia, the tax taxes the tobacco and cigarettes. It's just a, in Indonesia, it's just a percentage tax. But in Australia, the tax doesn't tax the margin. In Indonesia, it does. And that's why the margins are supported in Australia and not in Indonesia. But the net effect of which is, say, tobacco margins are often 50% or even higher. Um, in Indonesia, where the tax doesn't support the margin, the tobacco margin is more like 16%. Now, I want to put that into perspective. You know, Apple is my definitive, iconic, fat margin consumer good company. It sells really cool, expensive stuff. Its margins are 27, right? So, you know, a lot of these cigarette companies have margins twice Apple, and all they do is roll tobacco, which they buy in wholesale. Now, for years and years and years, taxes have gone up. And surprisingly, that's been good for cigarette companies. And the reason it's been good for cigarette companies in the end is it's completely supported their margin. So the way you think about tobacco company economics is margins just go up and up and up. And I can't see that stopping. And the reason I can't see that stopping is that there are good social reasons and certainly good revenue reasons why you would want to raise the taxes, even if people smoke less, right? right? causes people to smoke less. Every year, the volumes have fallen about 
It's a good thing for the world. Tobacco is a horrible habit. It kills lots of people. Right? So each year what happens is volumes fall about one, margins rise a little bit, revenue keeps going up, stocks trade at a discount because you know volumes are falling and who wants to own a tobacco company? And they have started buying back their shares or been buying back their shares. Now, if you can buy back more than 1% of your shares per year, and historically they have, then the number of smokers per tobacco share goes up, not down. And it's been going up for like 30 years, even though the number of smokers has gone down. And the margin has gone up, right? So it turns out that tobacco stocks have been really, really good stocks over a 30-year period. And it's almost in, inconceivable that somebody's going to launch another brand because, again, you know, how do you launch another brand? You have t TV advertising, radio advertising. Bands. It's all gone. You're not allowed to put labels up or billboards. It's all gone. So what you've got is these dying franchises, but they're dying sufficiently slowly and generating boatloads of cash as they do it. Now, along comes vaping and to some extent, modern oral tobacco, but particularly vaping. And that really upset the apple cart. Um, I, I don't know how dangerous vaping is, but it's clearly less than 10% and probably less than 1% of the mortality of smoking. Smoking is just really stupid. You're going to kill yourself. 30% 30 of heavy smokers die of smoking related don't do it, right? Vaping, it's going to be less than 3%. It's probably going to be less than 1%. Some, in the scheme of things, relatively safe. And the, along comes Juul. Markets fairly aggressively, and we can talk to you about the pharmacology at length, but that's a long conversation. But Juul starts stealing, addicting large numbers of youth, which is bad, right? really large numbers of youth. But it also has smokers that give up smoking and taking up jewel. And from a health perspective, there's a plus and a minus here. Right? The minus is the large number of youth that are addicted who might actually transition to combustibles if you're unlucky. And the plus is everyone that gives up smoking and takes up jeweling instead is going to have a lower mortality. Don't know how much lower, but definitely lower. And, but from an investor's perspective, in tobacco companies, this looked like horrible news. And the reason is that tobacco volume, cigarette volumes, started falling 5, 6, and 7% per year. Now, at 5, 6, 7% falling volume, this thing's not going to be an important business in Mm -hmm. Right, it's just horrible. Right, for I mean, it's wonderful for the world and horrible for tobacco stocks. And if you go have a look at the tobacco stocks, they've just been awful. Right, for three or four years. So they're trading now at eight to nine times cash flow. This hasn't been the case for a long time. But the eight to nine times cash flow is against a pros prospective cash flow in the future that looks pretty bad. Now, the US government, in their wisdom, and I don't know, I honestly don't know whether it's a plus or a minus, have made it harder to buy jewel. 
there's been a vaping scare, they've banned certain flavours, they've banned certain people's stocking jewel, there's a whole lot of extra measures to make it harder to buy jewel, which are focused on the real problem of young people getting addicted. Mm -hmm. But the net effect of which in the Nielsen data is that jewel is like minus 30% this year. Right? The jewel is falling off a cliff. Philip Morris, sorry, Altria, which is Philip Morris America, bought 35, I think, percent of Joule for 16 billion or something a few years ago, and they've written it down to about 1.8 billion. I'm sorry I'm doing that from memory because I haven't read mm -hmm. the K for a while, or the Q. They did a write-off in the last quarter, so I did actually read the Q. But, you know, um, that said, you know, that's a pretty spectacular write-off from, from Altria. But US cigarette volumes in some brands are up this year. Now, it's hard to tell, you know, is this because Juul has suddenly become unfashionable or hard to obtain, it's easy to obtain cigarettes, and so people are switching from Juul to cigarettes? If that's the case, the US FDA has just managed to kill a vast number of people. But they've also managed to save the tobacco companies, right? Because, you know, Tobacco volumes aren't falling, and mm -hmm. tobacco volumes aren't falling, or aren't falling very much. That's incredibly good for the stocks, like breathtakingly good. Or it could be just that, you know, a smoke from home thing, which is, you know, if you're working in the office, going out and having a ciggy is hard work because you've got to get in the elevator and go downstairs, and you've got to have, and you're standing at the door with this walk of shame when all your fellow employees are walking, right? And if you're working from home, you just have a ciggy at the desk. Right? And mm -hmm. maybe tobacco volumes are up because of COVID. I don't know. I think they're up because Juul is down. And the reason I think they're up because Juul is down is that there's a fairly good inverse correlation in the Nielsen data to Juul sales. And, and John, you're not concerned about the ethical debate or reasons that many investors don't want to hold tobacco? Well, in some sense, that's also the opportunity, right? In that, you know, at the moment, ESG stocks have an incredible bubble. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I am concerned about it. And the reason I'm concerned about it, and it's actually a genuine negative, is unethical things tend to get regulated. And mostly that regulation reduces your profit, mm -hmm. right? Incrementally, that doesn't appear to be the case here, right? You know, it's hard to see what the incremental regulation on cigarettes will be. In fact, most of the regulation on cigarettes has increased their profit. The taxes and increased have increased their, their profit. The lack of competition, the lack of advertising, all of that's increased their profit. Right. John, can I maybe... But I am concerned because, yeah. you know, owning unethical businesses does expose you to, or not even businesses that are unethical, businesses that are perceived to be unethical, exposes you to regulatory risk. And this one is unethical. Let's be honest about it. You know, it's, these are not nice companies. Yes. Right. Can I maybe pivot there? And you talked earlier on about there being a large increase in the rate of change of technology. How has that changed how you identify fraudsters and in the short positions? So, for instance, I think in the past you've had lots of um, uh, mining type of companies where you've tracked and been able to uh, identify fraudsters. 
in a newer world where you've got a rate of technology and for instance in the you know new technologies it's and markets making so it harder for us to follow them how is, how it's is someone also making a, it easier yeah. for the fraudsters in some sense there's a joke about new technology that the earliest adopter of every new technology is always pornographers okay right and you know online video was big for them before it was big for the rest of the world 3d video was experimented on by them right and the reason is that they're unregulated and they're very competitive and very profitable right and unregulated very competitive and very profitable is a recipe for adopting technological change fast and incidentally, that's what I think fraudsters are. They're mm -hmm. unregulated, right, or very hard to regulate. They're very competitive amongst themselves, and they're very, very, very profitable. And so they adopt technology fast. And so it's not that the type of stock we're shorting has changed much, but it has a little. It's that the mechanisms by which the fraudsters sell their stocks have changed a lot. So once upon a time, the definitive mechanism was a boiler room. Mm -hmm. right? And there were boiler rooms in, in Asia. Often, there's an old Four Corners episode about boiler rooms in Thailand. And unfortunately, it's not still up on the Four Corners website. I would really like it at the moment. I actually know who the crooks that ran those boiler rooms are, but I don't think Four Corners did. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the way that they worked was that they set themselves up in, dare I say it, sex tourism hotspots. And then slightly desperate young Australian men or young German men would wind up getting hooked to the lifestyle of beer and hookers. And they'd be offered 500 to to $1,000 a week to work in a call centre. And what they would do is that they would... The Australians would call Australians and the Germans would call Australians and they Germans and they would just rip people off over the phone. Mm -hmm. And that was actually quite a big business. And those that they don't exist anymore as far as I can tell, or they've almost entirely gone. And the reason they've all almost entirely gone is that the new mechanism of choice is social media. Mm -hmm. And I wrote about this in the last one, last quarterly, and you know, it was a fairly well known fraud that was actually busted. It was run by some prominent Republicans who are one degree of separation from the current US president. And they ran what I would call a sort of right-wing think tank bullshit scare. And there are a few of these. Um, the guy who ran the boiler rooms later ran an organization called the Sovereign Society. And the Sovereign Society used to persuade you that Bernanke was going to devalue the US dollar to zero and that Obama was going to tax you out of existence and that pension funds hopped to unions were going to bankrupt the United States and in order to be a rich, rich sovereign individual you had to get your money out of the United States whereupon they would persuade you to put it in a new way trust held by a Mauritius trust held by something invested in all these funds and then they'd steal it. And when they stole it, you'd go to your lawyer and say, look, I want to sue these guys and I'd write out the affidavit and the guy and your lawyer would look at you and say, if you file that affidavit, you're going to court for criminal tax avoidance. You're going to prison for criminal tax avoidance and so you couldn't sue and it was a perfect crime. Mm. And they were targeted through right-wing net. 
networks. And unfortunate, we knew who they were, and unfortunately we couldn't short them because there's no stock there. But there was a, one that we could short, which did exactly the same thing, except it led you to a website called metals.com, which eventually gave you a bunch of investment advice, and that bunch of investment was targeted only at people who had just retired or about to retire, in other words, who had a lot of investable cash, and who um, was done on Facebook, and who had expressed pro-Trump views or very conservative views. And it would persuade them the same sort of thing. And it would persuade them that they had to be invested in gold and gold mining stocks and things like that. And then it would invest them in a whole lot of gold mining stocks and guess what? They'd lose all their money. Now, the problem with that is unless you are a about to retire or nearly retired um, person on Facebook who expresses pro-Trump views, you're never even going to see the lead. Mm. Right? So it's harder for us to track. And the technology, uh, and there are variants on that fraud too that target people who believe in greenhouse gases. Yes. Right? And they want you to invest in some ESG fraud. There are variants on that fraud in all sorts of ways. And the social media makes it hard, easier for them to promote stocks in ways that I can't see. So how do you tell whether someone like Elon Musk, for instance, is a visionary or a fraud? What are the, it are is actually like, possible to be both. <clears throat> and Elon Musk, I almost want to avoid, right? And the reason I want to avoid Elon Musk is Elon Musk has more good things and more bad things about him than most people. And I'm not very good at dealing with heart frauds, right? Um, and, you know, some heart frauds work extremely well. I mean, one of the jokes, for instance, is that Oracle 8 does what Oracle 3 promised it would do. And if you had looked at all the claims about Oracle 3 that were made both to the customers and to the stock market, you'd work out that 70% of them were false. And if you then shorted Oracle, you were in for a world of pain because the stock went up for the next 10 years, and they actually did deliver. Right? So... You know, is that the line between vaporware over promise and fraud is a fine line, right? Um, Elon Musk could be in the Oracle camp, meaning there's clearly a lot of overpromise there. There's clearly a lot of things that are not true there, but there's also clearly a lot of things that he has achieved there. I'd prefer somebody for whom the ratio is worse. Right, I'm really interested. There's a mining stock in Australia which I'm not going to name for defamation purposes, but the um, what the chairman was charged. I don't think they were convicted of securities fraud 25 years ago in Australia, mm -hmm. and he is a bit character in the one MDB debacle, right, which is the giant theft against the Malaysian sovereign wealth fund. And it's not even sure, you can't tell whether he knew what was going on at 1MDB or not. He might have been an innocent victim. But he did associate with some people who we now know are fraudsters for sure. And we have a rough rule of thumb, which is that if you hang around with fraudsters, you're probably a fraudster. 
Yes. So you, need, so you need. He now has one of the biggest undeveloped gold mine, gold discoveries in the world, in an area that has not previously been prospected for gold, and with a market cap that is well over five hundred million dollars. Now I'm happy to short ten or fifteen pips of it, and I could be wrong. He could really have a very big gold mine. It just doesn't seem likely to me. The form doesn't suggest so. John, how, how do you think about or, or make of the recent press around SEEK from an organisation or the people behind it who seem to have some form okay. in Australia? With I haven't actually read the article. The, but the <clears throat> press around it was all that Pin, which is the Chinese thing, um, had, a lot of fake, had a lot of fake profiles, etc., a, that doesn't surprise me at all. I've seen every, many, many Chinese media companies and they all have fake profiles. In fact, dare I say it, you know, dare, dare I say it, LinkedIn, which is a reputable company, has a shitload of fake profiles. I say yes to them all and every now and again somebody tries to scam me and that's good, I get another fake profile to mm -hmm. add to my list of fake profiles. Um, that struck me without reading it as a particularly weak short case. Um, and I haven't read it. But if that's all they've got, my reaction was, yeah, okay, so what? So now, on the flip side, Seek is not a cheap stock. Right? It's really, really not a cheap stock. Right? Even if you believe everything, and I have no reason to not, you have to make some pretty heroic assumptions before you're going to get, say, 7% on your money over the next 10 years. In other words, it's might at worst, it's just a cheap shot against an expensive stock. I don't have a strong opinion. Now, the guys that did it, actually, I mean, I saw a lot of the work that they've done on other things, and it's been high quality. So please don't... Yep, sure. I... <clears throat> I didn't read their piece yet. I will, right? And the reason I will is that the guys have form and good quality, and I may change my mind when I read it because there may be fifty other things that I haven't worked out, right? John, but the headline, the headlines were uninspiring. Yes, John. What effect, if any, do you think passive investing is having on the market? The rise of ETFs in the big cap <coughs> area. Mm -hmm. I actually can't see why you wouldn't be in an ETF mostly. If what you're doing is, you know, you're a relatively unsophisticated investor buying large cap indices, ETFs just look relatively sensible. In the small cap area, I will have a wildly different view. Right? And the reason I'll have a wildly different view is that ETFs constitutes forced buyers. And if you're a scammer in the US, getting your scam into the Russell 2000 is like the best thing that's ever happened to you. And the reason is suddenly there's 20% or 25% of your stock that is just going to be bought by people who don't look at you. And we have seen scam after scam after scam go into ETFs. And this is money for jam. It's the best, from our perspective, 
the ETF lends the stock and the fraud ha has a natural buyer. We're all over that. From the scammer's perspective, the ETF is the best thing that ever happened to them. If you start getting to, you know, there are some markets like Hong Kong, which are, oh, you can list your scam here and we'll have some ETFs buy it. If you buy a Hong Kong, a Hong Kong small cap ETF, anything outside the top 20, in fact, frankly, if you buy any Hong Kong ETF, you're asking scammers to rape you. So at one level, I think ETFs are just a very simple way of, you know, managing big caps. At another level, I think this ETF craze is going to lead to the biggest wipeout of small cap frauds you could ever imagine, right? Just because, oh, goody, now I've got a formula for getting my ETF, my little small cap fraud into an ETF at the bottom end. I can do this on an industrial scale and I can steal from people on an industrial scale. There's a rule of thumb here, which is that anything that people do in financial markets that's really clever is really good for the first people and gets less good over time, right? So ETFs make sense when they're 10% of the market. They make a lot less sense when they're 50. They, for reasons I've explained, make a lot more sense for big cap ETFs and small cap ETFs, but I see Small cap ETFs ever getting to 50% of the market, I am going to do, I'm going to do so well as a short seller and my victims are going to be ETFs and I'm going to ride along with the scammers that sell to me. And John, changing pace a little and just to round things up before we conclude, uh, <clears throat> on some housekeeping, I note that you've changed the fund. Uh, close, cha close the close fund. Close the fund. And, and uh, can you explain to our listeners and investors why that is good news for our investors? Well, and, and the reasons behind it. We have some tricks that make a lot of alpha on the short side. Now, a lot of alpha on the short side hasn't been a great investment strategy during a bull market. You would have rather just been levered long, mm -hmm. right? But we actually think it will be a very good investment strategy over the next whole cycle. Um, and it's proved that way every time the market's gone down. You know, the market went down the last couple of weeks and we've been great. Um, but, you know, being the best short seller in the world has been a booby prize lately. That said, we think it's a good idea. The problem with our short strategy is things like that gold stock I mentioned. We can short a million dollars worth of it, but we can't short a hundred million dollars worth of it. We can't even short five million dollars worth of it, but we can't short a hundred. Um, if we want to be short, say, $500 million, we have to find a hundred or two hundred of these things, which we can do, but we can't short find 500 of them. We're scale limited on the short side. Now, I, we might be able to find more if we work harder, but it becomes asymptotically difficult. It really does. Mm -hmm. So at some stage or other, in order to preserve any alpha we have on the short side, we do have to stop growing. And it's a simple trade-off here, which is I can stop growing and preserve your returns and probably not work 90 hours a week. Just work 65, <laughs> right? Maybe 55, but, you know, I aspire to 50. Um, but the... It, it, it's like, how do I 
without completely draining my team and destroying the morale, preserve our alpha on the short side. And the only way I can see to do it is to stop growing. So we're doing it partly for us, which is, you know, that I don't want to, I don't want to burn myself out. I don't want to burn my staff out. And partly for the clients, because they'll get better results if we're smaller. And there's some trade-offs. I mean, when we got larger, we could afford better systems. We could afford better data. And those did help, right? But we think we've got the trade-off right. Um, I, my wife thinks I've got the trade-off right because, you know, 65 hours a week versus 55 is a very big difference for her. <laughs> um, and I think I've got the trade-off right for the, for the clients too. I mean, I suspect the clients would be better if we'd stopped 100 million earlier but it's a very marginal thing and if we hadn't stopped we would have eventually run out of alpha generating ideas it I mean it's a there's a real problem with funds that have a trick that get five times bigger than the trick and you know I, I the, the fund one of the fund managers I most admire but I'm not sure I want to replicate is Dan Loeb and Dan Loeb when he started a lot of his tricks looked like ours and he outgrew them and he had to reinvent himself several times. And eventually he reinvented himself in quite clever ways. And maybe we will too, but I'm not sure we're as clever as Dan Loeb and it might take us longer to do it, which is, you know, one of the reasons for being closed now. Right? And I'm not sure Dan Loeb's results are any better for having reinvented for reinvested himself, reinvented himself, maybe he was better off staying small, or his clients would have been better off staying small. Mm. Terrific. Well, thank, thank you very much, John. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us Inside the Rope. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.